May I invite your attention uh, once again to God's Word, uh, Hebrews chapter 8. We'll continue our study of that book. We're just marching right along in the book of Hebrews. Let me mention two quick things while you're flipping uh, in your Bibles. Um, yes, I'm sorry, but I do resume Wednesday nights, um, you know, back to the boredom of Dr. Young, but... Um, there is a supper at 5.30, don't forget, the, the supper, and then the, the Bible study, or the little service starts at 6.30. Um, you, you might find me boring, but not, not this Wednesday, but next Wednesday, I've got a little surprise for you, a little treat for you, the 17th, uh, and I, I, I can promise you uh, that one won't be boring, so uh, come be with us Wednesday night. And then for those of you who participated in Gigi, which is an acronym for um, the Growth and Grace Institute, which is a discipleship package here at Grace Divine. Uh, level two will begin in September, September the 10th. And five more courses added to the five that we did this summer. So, Lord willing, uh, if you couldn't make it this summer, maybe you can make some of those uh, in the fall. You, you remember, there's, um, you don't have to sign up, you just have to show up. Uh, you, you can leave at halftime if you like. Doesn't matter to me. I'm just trying to offer uh, a package of discipleship uh, themes that will help people grow um, in grace. Now, you follow in your copies of that which is inerrant, infallible, inspired. This, ladies and gentlemen, is the very mind of God, is black words on a white page. So you follow as I read 10 verses of it, beginning at verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 8. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect a tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with him when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. <clears throat> For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, this word, this endures 
forever. Guys, at this point in the development of the book of Hebrews, the author of the book pauses to do a bit of summarizing. Um, He has been telling us in the previous chapters of the superiority of the priestly function of Jesus Christ as compared to the Aaronic Levitical priesthood. He's, um, He's talked about how Jesus is from a different tribe. He's from the order of Melchizedek that his priesthood is eternal, not those other guys. Not that ironic thing, no, 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 that's, that's temporary because those guys die. But, um, that, um, that Jesus' priesthood, it, it works, it's effective, it saves to the uttermost and not the others. And then uh, that other one was weak where this one's strong. That, that's ground he's already covered. And he is, has said that in every, that in every respect, the priesthood of Jesus Christ is superior to the Aaronic Levitical priesthood. Okay? Now, in chapter 8, he adds another layer. He uh, introduces another theme. It has to do with a better covenant. Now, that, that term is found in chapter 7, verse 22 better covenant. But he puts meat on those bones in chapter 8. Now guys, (laughs) um, I could spend a whole lot of your time, which I could probably empty this room with all the time, um, but uh, talking to you about covenants and covenant theology. I am theologically designated or identified as a covenantalist. That's what I am. I'm a covenantalist. And trust me, there's just a whole lot of stuff. I, I, you know, I would love to just pour my covenant theology all over you. But we don't have time to do that here. Now, I have thought about, and I probably will, include a course on covenant theology in the Growth and Grace Institute, the uh, GG, the, uh, the discipleship package that we offer. I'll, I'll probably have a course there. That will at least give me two hours. I only have 35 minutes here. So uh, developing that covenantal theology, this is just not the, the time and place. But you've got to start with at least this much, which is very clear in the text. It's very clear. It's very simple you can get at least this much, you can see that what he is saying is that the new covenant is better than the old covenant. Well, now, Dr. Young, do you think I'm some kind of idiot? I mean, I, I can see that it says it's very clear that the new covenant's better than the old covenant. Good. That's a good start. That begs the question, How? How is the new covenant better than the old covenant? And to answer that, we have to race right over to verse 10. Um, Where in verse 10, we are given one of the ways that the new covenant is better than the old covenant. We're only given one way, but it's a biggie. Actually, it is the essence of the difference 
between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. So guys, I'm going to spend my time this morning explaining to you that one feature of the New Covenant, mentioned in verse 10, um, which is telling you, verse 10 is, why the New Covenant is better than the Old Covenant. But now guys, stay with me here. Um, To understand why the Old Covenant or the New Covenant is better than the Old Covenant, you got to understand the flaw in the Old Covenant. Look at verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, it wasn't faultless. If it had been faultless, yada, yada, yada. But it wasn't faultless, that first covenant. It was flawed. Now, what is the flaw in the old covenant that is so vastly improved in the new, which then, of course, makes the new covenant better than the old covenant? <laughs> Are you still with me? The old covenant's, the new covenant's better than the old covenant. The old covenant's flawed. How's it flawed? Because what you're going to see in the new covenant is the correction of the flawed old covenant. Got it? Now, gang, what I'm going to do in my first point, my first point is the flaw. The flaw in the old covenant. Okay, so you've got to stay with me. Because once you understand the flaw in the Old Covenant, then you're going to see how much better is the New Covenant, which is going to be pointed out to you in verse 10, okay? So first of all, I've got to tell you, I've got to explain to you why the Old Covenant is flawed. Are you ready? Here we go. Okay, first of all, at the heart of the Old Covenant was, of course, the, the Ten Commandments. They were a perfect law given by a perfect God. Um, you, you have ten commandments, you didn't need nine, you don't need eleven. Uh, because if you understand the ten commandments rightly, then the ten commandments cover all the bases. Really? Ten commandments cover all the bases? Well, yeah, if you understand them rightly. L- l- let me illustrate. Um, my wife, who, uh, I, it's a long story, she's with grandchildren for the moment, she'll be here in the next service. But anyway. My wife um, teaches a Bible study um, every Wednesday during the school year down in Binghamton with the Neighborhood Christian Center, something called Truth Seekers. If you want to be a part, let me know. But last fall, my, um, my wife was teaching a little lesson on the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments. And so she had drawn on poster board two little tablets, you know, things that look like tablets that you see in the movies, you know. And then on there, written all five, ten of the commandments on the poster board. And so she, she took the poster board, um, and she showed it to the kids, and then she taught her lesson on the Ten Commandments. And then she said, boys and girls, I have broken every one of these commandments, all ten of them. And a little girl sitting in the front row, her name was Ivory, 
with eyes widened, raised her hand and said, Miss Susie, have you killed somebody? Well, guys, that's what I mean by rightly understanding. Because as you know, I hope, Jesus tells us how to read the Ten Commandments. He does it in Matthew chapter 5. Do you remember um, in Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, You have heard it said that thou shalt not commit murder. But I say unto you, says Jesus, if you are angry, yada, 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 if illegitimate, unjustified anger is a violation of the sixth commandment. The commandment that says thou shalt do no murder. So to be angry illegitimately is to violate the sixth commandment. Did you know that was in the sixth commandment? Well, let me give you another example, which we seem to know better. We get this one better, you know. Uh, The seventh commandment. You know what the seventh commandment says, don't you? Thou shalt not commit adultery. And you know what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5? Now, don't you? He says, you have heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, that he who looks upon a woman to lust after her has committed adultery. So, uh, Dr. Jimmy, have you violated the sixth commandment? Oh, boy, you bet I have. Oh, and Dr. Jimmy, have you you violated the seventh commandment? In spades. You see, guys, you see what I'm trying to illustrate? I'm I'm trying to say that there is more in the Ten Commandments than is perceived on the surface of the words. Well, how do you know that, Dr. Young? I know it because Jesus taught it in Matthew chapter 5. He taught us how to read the Ten Commandments. And, and, and he says that there are things embedded in those commandments that are more than just on the surface of the words. Like if you think that you have not committed adultery just because you've been faithful to your spouse, I'm glad you're faithful to your spouse. But that doesn't mean you haven't violated the seventh commandment. That's what I'm saying when I, that's what I mean when I say the, the Ten Commandments, perfect, you don't need nine, you don't need eleven. When read rightly, they touch all the bases. And had they been kept, men would have lived the life that they were intended to live. So what, what I'm saying, and remember, all I'm trying to do at this moment is show you the flaw in the Old Covenant. That's all I'm trying to do. But first, I I, I tell you that the Ten Commandments, Paul, later on in Romans 7, says that the law is holy, righteous, and good. It's a perfect commandment. It's a perfect set of commandments. Um, There's there's an intrinsic perfection to the Ten Commandments, okay? But secondly, um, those Ten Commandments were given in a spectacular way. Do you remember? Exodus 19, Exodus 19, when, when the mountain shook and smoked and lightning and thunder and people were running, you know, and, and, uh, and God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses. Remember that? I mean, ladies and gentlemen, the arrival of the Ten Commandments was nothing short of spectacular. 
So you have a perfect law given in a perfect way with perfect motivations, clear, precise, succinct, positive and negative motivations. Obey, live, disobey, die. Um, just the motivations alone should have been enough, motive, uh, enough to, to prompt obedience. But they weren't. Guys, the whole system failed. The most perfect law given in the most perfect way with the most perfect motivations failed. Law written on stones by the finger of God failed. Why? Because you see, ladies and gentlemen, the law did not provide the ability to obey it. The law was given and the batteries were not included. Perfect law given in a perfect way with perfect motivation, but it was not kept. You know, there's a scene in um, Exodus 24 where Moses is standing before Israel and he says to, the, the, to Israel, you know, here, do this, do this, do this, and get the Ten Commandments, you know. And, and the response is very admirable and they say, we will obey. But they didn't. They even memorized the Ten Commandments. Can anybody in here say that? They still didn't obey them. In fact, they were told to put tassels on their, on their clothing, you know, to remind them of the Ten Commandments. They still didn't obey them. Because you see, ladies and gentlemen, the law was given without the power to obey them. That's the flaw. Remember verse 7? If the law would have been faultless, well, it wasn't faultless. Because it didn't include the batteries. So, God in an act of infinite love replaces that covenant with a better covenant. And he says, this time, I'm not going to put my finger on tablets of stone. I'm going to put my finger on their hearts. I'm going to write it on their hearts. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is why the new covenant is better than the old. Guys, do you see it in verse 10? Remember, God wrote those, those Ten Commandments on tablets of stone and then they stuck them in an ark. And God says, I'm not going to do that again. I'm going to give them Ten Commandments all right. But I'm going to write them on their hearts. And so everything that was external 
becomes internal. Everything that was on the outside now moves to the inside as the result of the rebirth, of regeneration. Gang, Christianity is, is not a decision to do better. It's, it's not a determination, I'm going to try harder, that I'm going I'm to turn over a new leaf. I'm going to clean up my act. No, ladies and gentlemen. Christianity is about a change that takes place on the inside of us. This, this, this new covenant would be distinct from and better than the old covenant. It is not the, the old covenant just patched up a little bit. No, no. We're told in verse 6 that it's going to be mediated by Jesus Christ. And so there's been this change, not only in the priesthood, but in the law itself. And here's the change, ladies and gentlemen, according to verse 10. The change is they both, that is the priesthood and the law, they both moved inside. So all of the new covenant would be realized from the inside out. Not the outside in. Guys, a law that is loved in the heart then gets expressed on the outside, not the other way around. I don't obey so that I can change my heart. My heart gets changed. And it shows up in my outside external behavior. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the flaw fixed. Do you see it? The flaw in the old covenant, perfect law, delivered perfectly, with perfect motivations, provided no ability to obey it. So God, in infinite grace and mercy, provides a new covenant, and he says, look at verse 10. I'm going to write it. I'm going to put it in their minds. I'm going to, I'm going to write it on their hearts, and thus, the flaw of the old covenant is fixed. Now, guys, you, you have to see this. You can't miss this. Um, we talked about the flaw. We talked about how he fixed the flaw. But you've got to see this, guys. Every time God saves somebody, every time he, he changes the insides of somebody, Um, he puts his law on those saved hearts. 
Do you see it in verse 10? I will write it. I will put it in their minds. I will write it on their hearts. Every time he, he does this saving work of grace, part of what he does in this change on the inside is that he writes his law upon the heart. You see, here's what happens, guys. The law does its work, its intended work. Here's, it, the law shows me just how wicked I am and how much I need a Savior. I mean, think about it, ladies and gentlemen. Standing in front of you this morning is a, is a murderer and an adulterer. Now, you know, like I described it in Matthew 5. <laughs> so we look at that law. That law convinces us of our sin, makes me to see it like I've never seen it before, and then I see God's remedy that he has provided for me in Jesus Christ. That was the intended purpose of the law. It was never intended to save anybody, Israel or anybody else. But now, as a saved man, that same law is written on my heart. The one that used to be on that stone now is on my heart. At the center of what makes me, me, at the very controlled center of my entire self, you know what you find there? The law of God. You did see that, didn't you, in the, in the text? And this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. Anybody that qualifies as God's people... Anybody who can rightly say, he is my God, do you know what's written on our hearts? The law. Um, gang, the law now, as a saved man, uh, guides me. It, it teaches me, telling me what, what holiness looks like. I am, um, I'm trained, I'm informed by the law. As a redeemed, regenerate, saved man, the thing that, 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 that steers me now is the thing that's written on my heart. And I'm asked to obey it. Guys, as a partaker of the new covenant, I agree with the law. I, I don't look to my culture to get definitions. I find out what the law has to say. Um, 
We who have it written on our hearts, we wouldn't alter it if we could. We, um, we're not the ones who define morality. God does that. Um, I don't make the rules, but I have them written on my heart. And so I yield to them. Not only do I agree with them, but I'm glad for them. We, we as redeemed people, we love to obey that law. Not because it earns us anything, it doesn't merit us a thing. But we love to obey that thing because, because it's that law that defines for us and establishes for us and, and describes for us what is the will of God for us. You want to know what God's will for me is, at least portion of it? That I be faithful to my wife. Your culture won't tell you that. I wouldn't change that, ladies and gentlemen, if I could. You know, as a result of this new heart thing, I have even become more concerned about the beam that is in my own eye than I am about the speck that I see in yours. I don't have time to critique you because I'm too busy trying to pursue obedience myself knowing how inconsistent I am. Guys, um, it's the new covenant that furnishes the power to obey the law. The batteries are included. And the batteries, of course, are provided by the Holy Spirit who has now taken up residence within. New covenant. Batteries included. Guys, you probably have to be my age to remember this guy's name, but if you are my age, you do remember his name. Maybe a little younger, you might remember. His name is Dr. Christian Bernard, or Barnard. I uh, remember him. He was the surgeon in South Africa that did the first heart transplant. I think it was in late 67. I think it was in December of 67. His, um, his first patient was a grocer in South Africa whose name was Louis Wash. Washkonsky, I think. That's close. Washkonsky. Louis Washkonsky lived 19 more days. And then he died of pneumonia. Um, in those 19 days, Dr. Barnard visited him and brought to him the heart that he had taken out of his, out of his chest. The, the, the man needed a new heart because he had this diseased heart. So he was going to die anyway, so he had, had uh, submitted to this experimental surgery. So he took that diseased one out of his chest, he had to put another one in, or whatever it he did. And in those 19 days, he visited Louis Washkonsky and showed him his heart. 
And um, it is said that, Washkansky said this, so this is my old heart that caused me so much trouble. I get a diseased heart too. But I got a new one. But it wasn't Christian Bernard who gave it to me. Guys, God has done a spiritual piece of surgery on me. And if you're a Christian, he's done it on you too. He has made a heart transplant. And on that new heart that he gave you, he wrote his law. That there is a new governing principle that takes over in my life. God does the heart transplant. And as a part of that new heart I got by his great work, ladies and gentlemen, inscribed on the tablets of that heart is his law. Because you see, God knew and understood that the best way to make a man keep the law is to make a man love the lawgiver. which is what the new covenant does. <laughs> I will be their God, and they will be my people. We love the lawgiver, ladies and gentlemen. My new heart includes a love for God. Only when I see that I can't keep his law and that I so desperately need his mercy, can I then see the provision in Christ, embrace him, and then I begin to live with the batteries hooked up, knowing that my obedience doesn't merit me a thing, but obedience, but obedience has been made possible. because I got a new heart. Gang, the old covenant could not empower anyone to obey, but it could, and it was designed to make me see my sin and my need for God's Savior. The law, the law convicts. The law shows me how broken I am. The law shows me how desperately I need a Savior. And then it points me to that Savior. And then it goes on to tell me how I might express love for that Savior who died in my place. Guys, the way to change people the most profoundly is to change what they love. 
And the law simply cannot do that. That's what the gospel does. It points you to Christ, shows you what he did, shows you who you need to love. I get a new heart, and on it is written the law of God. If you want to this afternoon, you can Google uh, Christian Bernard. There's a lot written about him, uh, but one of the links was, um, was quotes, quotes from Christian Bernard, and so I clicked on the links and on that link. And there was about four quotes. That was about all they had. And I read all four, and, and there was one that I thought was really interesting, and I want to read you his quote as we close. He says, and I'm quoting, It is infinitely better to transplant a heart than to bury it to be devoured by worms. It is infinitely better to transplant a heart than to bury it to be devoured by worms. Oh, Dr. Bernard, I so agree. But Dr. Bernard, you cannot give me the heart that I so desperately need. Only God can do that. And any person here who looks to Jesus Christ to save you has been given a new heart. And on that heart is written the law of God. Father, I, I pray that you'll make this clear to your people, uh, clear enough so that they might rejoice in the, the display of sovereign love that you, have, that you have shown us by granting us a new heart and showing us the Savior that we so need. Now, Father, with a law, a new law, with a new heart and a law written on it, Would you make us into a people who love to obey you, who love to yield to that which you say is true? Might we demonstrate that there's a new heart inside just by the way we reflect your holiness in our conduct? Father, if you brought people here this morning who have not yet met our Savior, Would you cause them to see that what they need more than they need their next breath, what they need is to be reconciled with you through faith in Christ. Show them that, Father, as you've shown it to so many in this room. We uh, commit them to you and this glorious gospel that announces that there's a better covenant that has replaced the flawed one. We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name.